with breaking news and political commentary from a public servant, serial entrepreneur, community leader, philanthropist, and American patriot, and a darn nice guy. It's time for the Grassroots Truthcast and your host, Gene Valentino. Hi friends, Gene Valentino here, and welcome to another edition of the Grassroots Truthcast. We have, as I've mentioned before, varying types of guests on uh, every week and from all walks of life. Sometimes we jump into something very particular and specific with social and local purpose. Sometimes we attack a nationwide issue. Sometimes we move more politically towards events or people that are in the know and in the news. I'm honored to have a very well-known guest with us today. His name's Roger Stone, and Roger has a very, a very big, long history and background. He's an American political consultant who has worked on the campaigns of key Republican politicians such as Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, Jack Kemp, and Donald Trump. He's also the subject of a Netflix documentary film, Get Me Roger Stone. <laughs> and Roger, good to see you, sir. Thank you for being with us today. Gene, I'm delighted to be with you. And I'm always interested in talking about politics or current affairs and the state of the national media. In this age of mass communications, it's very important to understand how opinions are formed, and how the media works, and how I believe in many ways it deserves the American public. So I'm happy to be here to talk about anything you would like. Really, nothing is off the table. You know, I am a I'm a partisan Republican. I admit that. I have a long sentimental attachment to the party of Abraham Lincoln, to the party of Dwight Eisenhower, to the party of Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, and of course, Donald Trump. I was, uh, for two years, a staff assistant to Senator Bob Dole, one of the greatest men, in my opinion, of the century. But I'm also, I think I've been around long enough to criticize my own party when I think it's wrong or when I think it has gotten off course, uh, which has happened uh, often uh, in the 45 years that I've been in American politics. So I criticize Democrats. I criticize Republicans. I criticize those in power. I criticize those who are not in power. I'm an equal opportunity truth teller, <laughs> which is why being on Truthcast was so attractive to me as an idea. Well, thank you for joining us. You know, I'll rapid fire you a whole bunch of questions. We'll run a half hour if we want. We'll take a break and run the full hour. But, you know, I'd like to dig into stuff going back as far as 60 years and then make the comparison to the uh, Biden administration, ergo the Bush administration and Trump administration of more recently, the Obama administration and going all the way back. But today I see so many parallels between your book. Oh, by the way, folks, his book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy. Uh, you can put a pitch in and when you're ready, Roger, but this is the case against LBJ written by Roger Stone. You can get it online. And in this paperback version, there's three extra chapters that'll light you up. I, I'd like Roger to uh, talk about those in particular. But my point was today, there are so many parallels between your book, Roger, uh, and current government. You're talking about LBJ and Kennedy and the behaviors not only of these elected officials, but the bureaucracy around them. And that's what I wanted to delve into. You know, 2020 wasn't the first questionable election in American history. You outlined President Johnson's egregious use of elected office for personal gain. And it sounds like, if I may, today, Joe Biden might be worth comparing. What have the career politicians done? That's a very, it's, you raise a very, very good point. So that book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ, makes, I think, a compelling case using eyewitness testimony, fingerprint evidence, as well as deep Texas and Washington politics to make a comprehensive case that Lyndon Baines Johnson was at the center of a plot that involved the Central Intelligence Agency and the Secret Service, organized crime, big Texas oil, and the national banking establishment to replace John F. Kennedy. Cui bono, as the, they say in Latin, who benefits. 
Lyndon Johnson had the most immediate need because in 1963, he was the target of two investigations into his personal corruption, the Bobby Baker investigation. Baker was the secretary of the Senate. Uh, he was Johnson's right-hand man. Johnson's quote is saying, the first man that I see in the morning, the last man I see at night. Baker was also Johnson's bag man. So no major appropriation passed the U.S. Senate in the 1950s when Johnson was the Senate majority leader and had a vice grip on the U.S. Senate uh, without a payoff to Lyndon Baines Johnson. Then there was the Billy Sal Estes investigation, which Sal Estes was a flamboyant Texas wheeler dealer who, through the, the influence of Lyndon Johnson, received multi-million dollar agricultural contracts from the U.S. government for fertilizer tanks that never actually existed, but was kicking back to Johnson. So there were two active investigations into LBJ. Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, John F. Kennedy's brother, had already begun telling people that Johnson would be dumped from the 1964 ticket and that he was going to go to prison. So Johnson, I argue, I think pretty comprehensively, moved first. It was Johnson's idea to for Kennedy to visit Texas. It was Johnson's demand that the presidential motorcade go not on the freeway, which would have been the fastest and safest route from the airport to the merchandise mart, but go through Dealey Plaza. And I think that I make a pretty good case in terms of the motives of everyone involved and Johnson's individual connection to them. You can get that book, by the way, by going to themanwhokilledkennedy.com. Themanwhokilledkennedy.com is the easiest way to buy it. You can buy it from Amazon or you can buy it at Barnes & Noble. But if you buy it at themanwhokilledkennedy.com, your copy will be personally signed. And as you said, Gene, if you do elect to buy it from another source, which is fine, I still benefit from that, but I would avoid the hardcover version, not that there's anything wrong with it, but after I wrote the hardcover version, I had so much information coming into me, as they say, over the transom, which I had to then go research and verify, I was able to add three shocking new uh, chapters. So the book is not only... Uh, a blow-by-blow -blow explanation of uh, the murder of John F. Kennedy and the evidence of, of uh, Johnson's uh, involvement uh, in that plot. But it's also a personal portrait of Johnson himself as an individual um, who was uh, epically corrupt uh, and extraordinarily crude uh, and, in fact, uh, sadistic. Johnson was a chronic uh, womanizer. Uh, he was a pill popper. He was an alcoholic. He was extraordinarily abusive to his uh, staff and anyone who worked for him. He was a, a master a flatterer. It was a, kind of his stock in trade. But he had an innate ability to seize on a man's weaknesses and then pound on them relentlessly to get that person to do whatever it was Lyndon Johnson wanted done. He kept a suite uh, in the old... Sheraton Carlton Hotel in Washington, D.C., uh, which had a two-way mirror in it, two-room suite, uh, where he filmed various members of the Senate and members of Congress and other officials in the Kennedy and the Eisenhower administration with prostitutes, both men and women, using that for blackmail, which is why Lyndon Johnson never put anything to a vote in the U.S. Senate where he didn't have the votes uh, to prevail. And interestingly enough, it was Bobby Baker, Johnson's right-hand man, who introduced John F. Kennedy to a beautiful East German spy uh, known as Inga. Uh, and that Johnson was able to use that information ultimately to even blackmail his way onto the Kennedy ticket in 1960 after he was vanquished uh, at the Los Angeles Convention uh, by the hard-charging and very charismatic JFK. So, Roger, uh, Roger, let me ahead. ask you right there. Now take that whole litany and compare it to the current Biden administration. What's the difference? Uh, there are there are many many similarities. I think we're we are now seeing that based on the basis of the 
of the investigation by House Republicans, very real evidence uh, of extortion, bribery, money laundering, racketeering, influence peddling, illegal lobbying, as well as massive million-dollar payments directly to members of the Biden family, including apparently Joe Biden himself, from China, from Russia, from Ukraine, from Romania. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's amazing to me, as aggressive as the House Republicans have been, and I think they could be more aggressive, by the way, uh, but anyone who wants to see the actual evidence of this corruption can go to a website called MarcoPoloUSA.org. That's MarcoPoloUSA.org. They have posted online all of the contents of Hunter Biden's actual laptop, but they have annotated it and footnoted it. And it is it is very well put together, not with interpretation, but with essentially guidelines so you can understand the context of what you are reading. And uh, they identify 249 federal crimes, another, I think, 121 sex-related crimes, uh, about 86 or 89 drug-related crimes that involve both Hunter Biden, but in many cases, these crimes involve Joe Biden himself, as well as Joe Biden's brother, Jimmy. So when it comes to corruption, I think Joe Biden and Lyndon Johnson are in the same ballpark. This turns out to be, as Donald Trump said, the most corrupt president in U.S. history. Yeah. Uh, Rapid fire between then and now. LBJ, use of his office for personal gain versus Biden. The Warren Commission versus January 6th. Your uh, very similar in both cases. I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson and his wife had uh, vast stock holdings in Bell Helicopter, General Dynamics, a Sikorsky Helicopter. They made millions and millions of dollars on the escalation of the war in Vietnam. Joe Biden clearly took a bribe from a Ukrainian energy company to use his influence as vice president to get a prosecutor who was investigating his son. Uh, and his business activities in Ukraine. So again, abuse uh, of power and enrichment. I think in the case of the Bidens, we still don't have the full story. But what's very different is the role of the press. The press today, the media, I think is more biased than it was. You had more of an establishment orientation. So for example, the fact that John F. Kennedy was a was an extraordinary playboy, was a chronic womanizer, but had an image as a wholesome family man, the whole Camelot image. There was not a reporter in Washington who didn't know that that JFK was a player, but nobody betrayed that confidence. Nobody wrote that. Nobody nobody reported it. Today, you have the same kind of, uh, I think, camaraderie between the Democrats, between the establishment and the media. And therefore, while while the coverage of Donald Trump has been extraordinary, if Trump jaywalked tomorrow, it would be a major front page story. But it appears to me that Joe Biden can actually steal millions of dollars or take millions of dollars from foreign sources. And that just doesn't get much coverage. It's really kind of odd, don't you think? Well, isn't this, this is something I wanted to pursue with you before we lose our hour's time. And that is the deep state behavior, not just the elected official, but you were a bureaucrat. In effect, you were a staffer behind the elected official. And so are all these bureaucrats in government going back J. Edgar Hoover in particular, that uh, ended up manipulating and doing things behind the scenes, such as wiretapping, such as investigations, such as dark shadow initiatives that I'd like to pursue with you. But it seems it was much deeper and more pervasive then. And then when Donald Trump coming down the escalator brings up the notion around that time of his phone lines being wiretapped or him being bugged in some way. It's like, as you just mentioned with the press, they uh, it was a deer in the headlights. They they just didn't hear it. No, in fact, they vehemently denied it. Leslie Stahl tried to tell him in an interview, there's no evidence of that. And of course, we now know, based on the John Durham report, that there was very definitely a illegal use of FISA warrants to spy on Donald Trump and his top staff members. 
the day of his inauguration, above the fold in the front page of the New York Times, there was a story that said that, that Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and Carter Page, three supporters of Donald Trump, were all under wiretap surveillance to monitor our communications with, quote unquote, the Russians. By the way, I had no communications with the Russians to monitor. Now, when I would ultimately be charged in a really a, a fabricated indictment for process crimes, because once prosecutors got warrants to examine all my millions of emails, text messages, phone calls, correspondence, the contents of all my computers and so on, they found no evidence of Russian collusion. They also found no evidence of WikiLeaks collaboration, which I was widely accused of in the press, because I had used my Twitter feed to set up a Google alert, a Google news alert for Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And I simply reported what he was saying publicly. The prosecutors acted like I was exposing some major dark secret, which of course was not the case. Fast so it was it was just re-reporting the information that was already out there. It's not like you had an inside connection with Julian Assange and releasing something that was pro proprietary and there go not available elsewhere. That is true. In fact, it's actually surprising how little I knew. I did have a source, uh, a New York radio journalist who was in touch with Assange or at least was in touch with Assange's people through an attorney, he told me what Assange had already said in public, that, that WikiLeaks had an enormous amount of information on Hillary Clinton and that he was going to publish it in October. That all turned out to be accurate. He denied telling me that. I produced proof that he did tell me that. It is, you have to admit, surprisingly vague. Uh, I had no specifics of what that information was specifically, but I was told that it would be that it would be political dynamite. And of course it was. That is perhaps that is precisely what happened. But to be candid, I was charged strictly for the purpose of pressuring me to bear false witness against Donald Trump. In other words, when they found no evidence of Russian collusion in their entire investigation, including their investigation of me, they sought to fabricate it. So like they, they tried uh, to do like they tried to do with Paul Manafort and uh, Mike Flynn. Pre precisely. So I, I do think there is a straight line in history here. In other words, Dwight Eisenhower, who, by the way, I think is very, very underrated as a president. He was a, a much greater president than people recognize. Perhaps it was his low key personal style. Perhaps it was the just kind of the role of the media in the 1950s. But we had unprecedented peace and prosperity under Dwight Eisenhower. He got us out of the Korean War. He is the last president to run a balanced budget for all eight years of his presidency. He resisted, and he was a military man, but he resisted calls for huge defense buildups, which he thought we didn't need. As a military man, he thought our national defense was more than adequate. He didn't think we needed the capacity to kill everybody around the world eight times. He thought having the capacity to kill everybody in the world one time was probably uh, sufficient. <laughs> he was a very great president, but on his way out, he warns us about the growing power of the military industrial complex. That's today's deep state. It's just another uh, description of it, which he described as the combination of corporate power allied with unelected bureaucrats uh, in the federal government and in the think tanks and the defense contractors who wield enormous influence, yes. when, particularly when turbocharged in an alliance uh, with mass media. Roger, would you would you correlate what you just described to CIA's Operation 40 operation and 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 the shadowy things that were going on back then and how that might relate to the CIA today and their involvement to protect Biden and the FBI, the FBI and the CIA to protect Biden? Operation 40 had many facets. It began as a plan to attempt to assassinate Fidel Castro. It included an alliance between the CIA and organized crime, because when Castro came to power in Cuba, the first thing he did was expel all of the CIA assets. But because the mob had casinos there that they still owned and ran under the sufferings of Fidel Castro, we still had sources on the island, albeit 
mob sources. It's important to note that the Operation 40 task force was chaired by Vice Vice President Richard Nixon. Operation 40 ultimately morphs into the doomed Bay of Pigs plan, in which there's an attempt uh, at the end of the Eisenhower administration. It was planned, but it is ultimately green-lighted by President John F. Kennedy uh, for an actual invasion uh, of Cuba uh, on the beaches of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, This is doomed from the beginning. First of all, we've had a security leak. Castro is well aware that this is going to happen. He knows exactly when and where it's going to happen. He is uh, prepared for it. Uh, Secondarily, the Central Intelligence Agency sells Kennedy a plan that includes air cover for the Cuban refugees uh, who are storming the beaches at the Bay of Pigs that was supposed to be supplied by 29 Panamanian flagged bombers uh, flown out of Panama, but captained by Cuban pilots. John Kennedy only approved uh, the doomed Bay of Pigs plan on the condition that the United States have some reasonable, plausible deniability. In other words, it was not supposed to look like a U.S.-led invasion of Cuba. It was supposed to look like an indigenous uprising of Cubans, both inside and outside Cuba. What, what of course, many people, many conservatives for that matter, don't know is the CIA, for reasons no one understands, canceled the Panamanian uh, fighter jets uh, the day before the invasion, uh, leaving the men storming on the beaches to be cut to ribbons uh, by Castro's uh, sharpshooters. And then, of course, they went to President Kennedy and said, the only way you can save the day here and save face and save the invasion is by sending in the U.S. Air Force. Kennedy, who realized that that would blow the cover of deniability, refused. He also thought it would be an unnecessary provocation of the Russians, and he was quite interested in avoiding World War III. Uh, This is one of the reasons, this is one, but not the entire reason why he would ultimately uh, be murdered. Uh, But uh, yes, I think that you have the same kind of epic corruption in our intelligence agencies today. Uh, We have a story in the, in the, that is out today that I think is credible, that a whistleblower has come forward to say uh, that he was offered, he and others were offered financial incentives to uh, lie about the origins of the COVID-19 vaccination in a Wuhan Chinese lab where it was weaponized with grants from the United States, with U.S. taxpayer dollars. This is this is the same Central Intelligence Agency, the same FBI, that insisted for two years that they had evidence of Russian collusion, Russian collusion. with Donald Trump's campaign. Yeah. A, 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 a battle cry that was picked up by the all facets of the mainstream media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, public, you know, NPR, you name it. I was a victim of this. There was no Russian collusion. We now know this. But let's be very clear. Uh, there was no probable cause. There was no evidence whatsoever that Trump was doing anything with the Russians or that his campaign was. Yet that rationale was used to justify the appointment of the all-powerful Robert Mueller as a special counsel. Uh, $40 million. Uh, It was uh, used uh, to uh, approve FISA warrants where the FISA court was defrauded about the evidence. Uh, It was used uh, uh, in combination with the Steele dossier, which those agencies knew was a fraud from the very beginning uh, to uh, rationalize the entire uh, impeachment uh, of uh, Donald Trump. So this is a perfect example there was never any evidence of Russian collusion, yet the investigation by special counsel John Durham was conducted so slowly. He took so much time that by the time he asserted all of it that I have just said publicly, the statute of limitations had run out. And therefore, the the, the coup plotters, which included Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, FBI Director James Comey, CIA Director John Brennan, uh, Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe, 
and uh, many others, including Hillary Clinton and her top aide, John Podesta, all escape any legal liability because the statute of limitations has a run out. Uh, so the, the establishment takes care of its own. We now Roger. know the truth. We now know the truth, but the truth has no consequences. Yeah, I would like to close on the uh, interview in the next uh, uh, quarter ahead on Nixon and uh, specifically Trump and your relationship with Trump and as it relates to Biden. You've been a strong supporter in the early days with Nixon. You are aware of the Nixon-Johnson-Kennedy administrations and the goings on there. So when you see the wrongdoings in the Biden administration, you must chuckle a little and say, well, here's round 27. It's not the first rodeo here. The bad behavior continues. And here's how in the next generation it seems to be evidencing itself. But before I get to Trump and your relationship with him, you referred to Richard Nixon as one of the greatest comebacks in American history. Would it not be true that Trump might be the greatest comeback? I don't disagree with your point, by the way. I think I think Nixon is, as you stated, one of the greatest comebacks against all odds. But look at the odds now against Trump in, in comparison. Well, let's compare them for a moment. Richard Nixon has a meteoric rise. Let's recognize that he goes from being released from the U.S. Navy to being vice president of the United States in six years, four years in the House, two years in the U.S. Senate, onto the national ticket and vice president of the United States. Six years from being a private citizen who, by the way, records being in New York City, uh, going law firm to law firm with his resume, looking for a job. Uh, on the day that Dwight Eisenhower is uh, being celebrated in a ticket tape parade on Wall Street, Nixon looks out the window in the skyscraper where he is interviewing with a law firm to see Dwight Eisenhower driving by uh, and being acclaimed in a ticker tape parade. And six years later, he is Dwight Eisenhower's running mate for vice president. So that is a meteoric rise by anyone's uh, estimation. And he spends eight years very carefully preparing his own bid for president. He specifically uses it to develop an expertise in foreign policy. He travels the globe on behalf of the Eisenhower administration. He meets Winston Churchill. He meets Charles de Gaulle. He meets Conrad Adenauer. He meets with the heads of all the states in Africa, most of the leaders in Europe and the Middle East. He develops an encyclopedic knowledge and understanding of geopolitics in preparation for uh, a bid for president. Then in that campaign for president against the less experienced John F. Kennedy, he makes a, a series of egregious mistakes, including, I think, uh, agreeing to four debates with the more telegetic Kennedy, pledged to visit all 50 states, which is physically debilitating when he should have just focused on a handful of swing states, as Kennedy did. He actually never makes the most important decision of his campaign, which is whether he is going to seek to break into the heretofore solid Democratic South, where the Republican Party is beginning to emerge, or whether he's going to focus on the big industrial states in the Midwest and the Northeast, where Eisenhower had done extraordinarily well. So he tries to split the difference by by agreeing to visit all 50 states. It's a horrific mistake. He bumps his knee on a car door, gets a staph infection, is hospitalized for two weeks after the after Labor Day. He sees Kennedy crisscrossing the country, going through the swing states, starting to build up a slight lead. Nixon comes roaring out of the hospital, still on antibiotics, still running a fever, 15 pounds underweight. He does five state stops on his way to Chicago. He shows up in Chicago completely and thoroughly exhausted. They say at the lighting test for the debate, his face was as gray as his suit. And he, I think, makes a classic misunderstanding about the medium of television. He doesn't realize that how you look is every bit as important, perhaps more important than what you have to say. But in that debate, that first debate, 
he fails to be properly made up. Kennedy looks like a bronzed god. That's because when Nixon arrived in Chicago, he went to his hotel room to cram in preparation for the debate, whereas Kennedy went to the roof of the hotel with two gorgeous hookers to sunbathe and prepare for the debate. The debate was a disaster. Kennedy was offered makeup. He said, no, no makeup for me, whereupon he went to his dressing room where his private makeup man, who had been flown in from New York, made him up. Uh, Nixon went to his dressing room where his advisors uh, begged him to allow him to be made up. He refused, ultimately agreeing to use a product called Lazy Shave, which was a powder that was used to conceal a five o'clock shadow. Anyway, the Kennedy advance men turned off the air conditioning in the studio. It became unnormally hot. Nixon found himself on defense in the debate as John F. Kennedy, who was thought to be more liberal than Nixon, uh, attacked him from the right, said that uh, we weren't doing enough to remove Castro. Nixon was furious because he knew Kennedy had been briefed uh, by the CIA about the Bay of Pigs plan, which had not yet been enacted, Said, insisted there was a missile gap between the United States and Russia. There was no missile gap, but that Eisenhower had allowed the Soviets to pull ahead in terms of nuclear weapons. That actually was false. And also they tangled over Quimoy and Matsu, long forgotten by history, but two islands that Red China and Nationalist China were fighting over at the time. So Kennedy, uh, an ardent anti-communist, came at Nixon, not from the left, but from the right, leaving Nixon on the defensive. And he started to sweat. And before long, the powder on his, on his face began to run. He literally melted down on national television. And what you what you just described is in the second book by Roger Stone, Nixon's Secrets, The Rise and Fall and the Untold Truth About the President, Watergate and the Pardon, and, uh, written by Roger Stone in, co in collaboration with a Mr. Michael Cola Pietro. And uh, uh, what I'd like to do is take a break at this at this moment and uh, just take a breather and we'll be back right after this. Hi, everybody. Gene Valentino, founder of Gene Valentino's Grassroots Truthcast. This segment is the opening segment of 11 segments to follow. The 11 segments will be each of the amendments to the Second Bill of Rights to the Constitution of the United States, which I've written as suggestions to improve the governing democracy, the democratic republic in which we live and work today. You know, the Constitution of the United States is a document written to protect the people from the overreaching government power, the overreaching government hand. And it's supposed to be able to unite people based on respect and individual liberty and freedom. It presumes that our government is one that succeeds, that governs less, not governs more, meaning of the people, by the people, and for the people. The republic, which is why we call it a democratic republic, has more to do with the concept of a decentralized form of government. In fact, in the early days, our founding fathers reached out to the different states of the nation in just that way and asked them to sign on to this thing called the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution. And to do so, it was a way of gathering the many together of different cultures, different religions, different ways of life and asked them to form one united America. It was a different, different, a difficult challenge but one that worked and has worked longer and better than any other governance in this world. But over the decades, over the two centuries, and more so recently, we've seen an acceleration of dysfunction, bad behavior, deceit, treachery, and abuse of that beautiful democratic process. And for that reason, I've proposed this second Bill of Rights. This second Bill of Rights 
complements the first Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, and the 17 more. A total of 27 amendments to the Constitution exist today. This Bill of Rights I propose is the second Bill of Rights, 11 more amendments to the Constitution. I'd like you to sit back and join me. Take one or two of these in sequence. Obviously, you'll find them on the website, which is where you've seen this, www.genevalentino.com, the second Bill of Rights on the top tab toolbar of the website. The first one and the other 11 will follow. Stay tuned. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Gene Valentino's Grassroots Truthcast. Roger Stone, our guest today, and this is the second half of our show. Roger, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate the insight you bring historically that goes back generation or so. Because I'm of the same age as you, and we're from the same state of Connecticut, and we've had some similar business engagements over the years. But our passion has always been government and politics. And for the folks to know, he served very closely and became a good advisor of Richard Nixon in the early days. So he brings to the table the the past and the, the present and now the future. Roger. Tell me, how do you think your experiences in the past and everything related to Nixon and the other presidential leaders in this nation equate to the comeback of, of Donald Trump? Well, Gene, it's a very interesting question. Donald Trump has asked me, as he looks back at his predecessors, why Nixon quit? Why, why didn't he fight it out? I mean, Nixon was most definitely a fighter, not a quitter as is Donald Trump. But the difference is that you had a monolithic media in 1973 and 74. There were three national television networks. There were no national newspapers. You had some very large, strong regional newspapers. The New York Times, the Washington Post were not yet uh, national newspapers because you had no internet. And news magazines, which don't even exist anymore, Newsweek, Time, Life, Look, Fortune, were enormously influential. We don't even have them anymore. Their, their logos have been purchased. Websites have been opened in those names, but they are a shadow of their former self. And today they don't have any objectivity there. So for example, Newsweek is actually owned by the Daily Beast. And it is just a recycle of the liberal line on any news item. So the difference was that Nixon had no platform, no internet, from which to launch a counteroffensive. When he punched back, when he said, for example, I am not a crook, when he was accused of being a crook, all he got was ridicule. Uh, had the internet existed in 1973 and four, I think he would most definitely have survived. Donald Trump is no less disliked by the media than Richard Nixon was, but the difference was he has a, an access to internet which they've tried to curtail substantially, but had there been no internet in 19, in 2016, had he not mastered the use of the tweet, for example, and alternative net-based media, I don't think he ever would have been elected president. Now, the, the campaign of censorship by the social media giants is a recognition that they inadvertently, by having a free, fair, open playing field on the internet led the way for a more democratic small d election in which in all honesty today gene valentino has as much influence as the new york times if he can get online and he has yeah, other black, than but black, but, but to jump in there roger to jump in there don't you see the difference though yes there's more social media and platforms that trump has at his disposal than nixon had however look at the censorship they're causing well, that's because it was a recognition of what had happened, and therefore they're trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. The amazing thing about Trump, however, is that he was he became very polarized. He was the subject of four years of relentless attack. Half the people in the country still believe there was some Russian collusion, even though it has been now completely and thoroughly debunked and disproved by the U.S. Justice Department and by special counsel uh John Durham, 
but it is still ingrained in an enormous number of people who are casually watching the news. And we're told this over and over again by the three major networks, by the major newspapers, and by at least one of the major cable networks. So he has been so, the victim, he's been the victim, as Nixon was, of a tremendous polarization. So when, what's the secret? So what's the secret sauce now? What's what's I know you still support Trump, but and so do I, but what what gets him over the finish line against the odds against him now? I think that uh, the people are wising up. And therefore, does anyone think that he would stay in charge of these totally fabricated crimes in New York or in Florida or in Georgia or in D.C.? If he were not leading in the polls, the, the permanent establishment, the two-party duopoly that runs the country, for which Donald Trump, who's completely independent and uncontrollable and who gauges everything by the simple question of, does that policy put America first? Does that decision put America first? Scares the daylights out of the permanent political establishment, and it particularly scares the daylights out of the intelligence agencies and the Department of Justice, where he is vowed to clean them out. So uh, in all honesty, I was honored to be there when he said he was running again. But I also had a certain, despite my great sentimental attachment to him and my gratitude to him because he recognized that I was being unfairly, I was to be unfairly incarcerated when in fact I'd actually done nothing wrong. He commuted my sentence two days before I was to be sent off to a dank Georgia prison where I was supposed to die of COVID. And he ultimately gave me a full and unconditional presidential pardon because he realized that I was lynched in a Soviet-style show trial and I'd actually done nothing wrong. Even today, I will go outside in public. People think, oh, well, you were a Russian spy. No, there was never any evidence of that produced. So, but what is, it is totally counterintuitive. Is the These media are, is the media still coming at you about uh, Russian collusion associations? No, I think, I think we're past that. Now they would like to depict me solely on the basis of guilt by association with being the mastermind of January 6th with which I have nothing whatsoever to do. Do I know individual members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers? Yes, I do. Do I know Donald Trump? Yes, I do. That proves exactly nothing. I didn't go to the Capitol. I wasn't even on the ellipse. I know nothing about it. And there is no evidence to the contrary. No email, no witness, no text message, no email, no chat group. It's it's the Russian collusion thing recycled, but it has no legs because there is no proof of it. It's all mindless guilt by association and what's Much your feeling what's your feeling about the proud boys leader enrique terrio and all this uh, crazy sentencing i don't uh, think i i know enrique terrio i don't think he could organize a tailgate party on a weekend <laughs> i don't i don't think that he is was a mastermind uh, of a of an organized insurrection of the capital i think that but i don't think any supporter of donald trump can get a fair trial in the District of Columbia. And a 22-year sentence seems excessive to me. I followed uh, the the trial. I thought his lawyers did an excellent job of trying to mount a defense. But as I learned in my own trial, the facts, the truth, the law, the Constitution, these things really don't matter. With all those experiences, though, Roger, you still seem so impassioned and patriotic toward protecting this America as we all know it. Well, those that have really learned what the beauty is of America, you stand there before me and the rest of the folks watching and you you're talking about issues that don't seem to have. We talk about the problem, but this pattern we've talked about this last hour What's the cure? I've brought forward on my website about 11 new amendments to the Constitution. I call it the second Bill of Rights. I talk in terms of term limits, a balanced budget, a defined border, and a underwriting criteria to be used to qualify yourself as a, as a citizen of this nation going through a more defined process. But Gene, who who is the leader that is going to champion everything that you just said? You need a leader. The answer. Well, the the the, the Congress. The, what's wrong with me? Amendments from the Constitution to the Constitution are not likely to occur under the structure and operation of this Congress. 
You're not not if you're going to get six. Certainly, certainly not going to succeed unless they have a cheerleader. The American people. American people can do anything. If the American people in overwhelming numbers demanded those reforms so that members of Congress believe that if I don't support those reforms, I'm not going to get reelected, then those reforms would happen. Politicians, whether Republicans or Democrats, by and large, have one thing in mind, longevity, getting reelected. We need a we need, first of all, a leader. And I think that leader is Donald Trump. So to get to your larger question, the reason that he has a resurgence that is unlike anything I have ever seen, because I read these poll numbers with the eye of an expert every day, and he is gaining ground in a way that is counterintuitive. Normally, you would think that when a candidate for federal office is charged with multiple crimes in multiple jurisdictions, that their campaign would collapse, that their support would collapse, that their money would dry up. But the exact opposite effect of these attempts to interfere in the election. I think most people realize that things were much better for them under Donald Trump. The price of gasoline was lower. The price of groceries was lower. The rate of inflation was over was lower. We had a record stock market. We didn't have any new wars. We didn't have a disastrous pullout of the troops that he brought home. And he brought home a lot of troops from the Middle East but yeah. not disastrous consequences. By the way, Biden's mistake was not withdrawing from Afghanistan. That was a continuation of a Trump administration policy. It was the manner in which he did it, which left our allies inside Afghanistan naked and set up without the drone attacks that Donald Trump had used to cover our retreat for the takeover of Afghanistan and for the seizing of all of literally billions of dollars of sophisticated military equipment. So Trump's of- foreign policy, Trump's foreign policy was one of strength and unpredictability. I have no doubt whatsoever that Vladimir Putin would never have invaded Ukraine because he was unsure about what Donald Trump would do. Trump told him Point blank, you ent- if you invade Ukraine, I'm going to hit Moscow with everything we have. And Putin said, you will not do that. And Trump said, try me. And I said, how about this? How about the notion that, and I'm going to speak as if I'm Donald Trump for a second. I'm Donald Trump, and here's what I'm willing to admit. I'm willing to admit that my one biggest mistake is that I surrounded myself with people who ended up being untrustworthy. I surrounded myself with people who did not deliver. Now there's few people in cabinet that, in his cabinet that should be ever honored. But let's remember, before I talk about Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, and I could name another six. Before I go there on the Democrat side, what happened to Rex Tillerson? Mad Dog Maddox. Uh, And I feel sorry for Mike Flynn, but what happened to him? Why is it that Pence was so dogmatic about helping Trump decide to push him out? What happened to Trump to me was a circling of the wagons by people who were lying to him and not being truthful. And his own his own inner circle was to be challenged. There's one guy who didn't do that, and his name's Roger Stone. You want to comment on the others? Well, to be very clear, I was never part of this administration, but I think Donald Trump, in all fairness, being a non-politician and having no Washington experience, came to Washington, first of all, believing that you could run government like a business, which unfortunately you probably cannot, although we should, secondarily believing there were two teams, the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans were for him. The Democrats were against him. He expected the Republican Party to rally around him loyally as they had around Ronald Reagan, who was also an outsider in the 45 years that I have been in the political arena and in 13 national presidential campaigns. I've never seen anything like this phenomena. Normally speaking, when a candidate is charged in multiple jurisdictions with federal crimes or state crimes, their candidacy collapses, their money dries up, and they are finished. This is counterintuitive, but given the nature of the crimes, Trump is essentially being charged with challenging the outcome of the last election, which any American has an absolute First Amendment right to do. He's also charged with seeking to collect uh, information 
documenting voter fraud or voter irregularities or anomalies in the election, I think the American people see through this. If Does anyone believe Donald Trump would be prosecuted today if he weren't leading by heavy double digits for the Republican nomination? Does anyone believe it would be prosecuted as if he isn't at a minimum in a dead heat with Joe Biden, although several polls this week that I respect in terms of their methodology actually show him with a small lead, which is completely antithetical given today's news flow. So that which not does not kill him, make him stronger. His candidacy has in an odd way been turbocharged. He's, I, I think early on when he announced he was running again, fundraising was slow. Now his fundraising has been turbocharged. He's brought in more than $30 million in small and medium donations from donors who can give again and again. And about 80% of them are new donors. He continues to bring in small and medium-sized contributions from his previous donors, whereas his leading rival, who is barely in second place now, Governor Ron DeSantis, I think made the mistake of depending on a small circle of millionaires and billionaires bundling and giving large contributions, in many cases having now maxed out, as well as in many cases having lost confidence in his ability to make ground in this race. Roger, do you see any alliance coming between uh, Trump and DeSantis? I think that is unfortunately an impossibility. The president believes, I think correctly, that he is solely responsible for the rise of Ron DeSantis. As a Floridian, Gene, you will remember that every single Republican county chairman was appointed was a supporting Ron DeSantis's opponent, Agriculture Commissioner Adam Putnam, a former congressman. Every single member of the Republican state House and state Senate, where they have a majority, the Speaker of the House the president of the Senate, every Republican member of the congressional delegation, with the exception of my friend, Matt Gates. So the Republican establishment was monolithically for Putnam. It is only Donald Trump's tweeted endorsement that reinvigorated the doomed candidacy of Ron DeSantis. Uh, and then the president had to change his schedule to uh, come to Florida three times in the last two weeks of the 2018 campaign to literally drag Ron DeSantis over the finish line because DeSantis is not a charismatic candidate. And as a congressman, he didn't have a very good grip on state issues. Yeah, yet in Florida, he's thought of so much so much, and so well by, by many for the uh, successes he's had in the state of Florida. Many wish he'd just come back home and take care of a bunch of things locally, which where he seems to have shined. Uh, I voted for him uh, three times in the primary, in the general election, and for his reelection. But we have an insurance crisis uh, in the in the state. We have a we have a we have a, a malaria epidemic in the state caused by the release of genetically altered mosquitoes. Crime is starting to tick up in the state. The state has a number of problems that I think the governor needs to be back here uh, dealing with. I just think his rationale for a candidacy was based solely on this idea that when Trump was charged in these various jurisdictions, his candidacy would implode and Ron DeSantis would be the beneficiary of that. Uh, but I asked you, Gene, if you had a, and this you'll understand this, this generational frame of reference, if you had a choice of going to see the Beatles or seeing a Beatles tribute band, which one would you do? Well, the Beatles... Exactly. So in Donald Trump, you have the founder of the America First movement. In Governor DeSantis, you have someone who I think speaks the rhetoric, but on so many issues, such as tariffs on the Chinese or the unlimited financing of the war in Ukraine, Ron DeSantis tends to be more of an establishment neocon Republican. That doesn't show when you're governor, but I do think if you look at his time in Congress, that's an accurate description. And he's and he seems to have flip-flopped on those two issues, specifically under pressure from some of his extraordinarily wealthy but establishment-oriented donors. So he told us, for example, with great fanfare, uh, that he would pass and sign a law prohibited uh, prohibiting the Red Chinese or any entity connected to them, because any Chinese business is 
chartered by the government, controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, from owning land in Florida. But if you read the bill he actually signed, it only it only prohibits the Chinese from buying land if it is contiguous to a military facility Correct. or government building. So it is not as sweeping as I think it should be. Just another example. The governor took nine and a half million dollars from Florida Power and Light and its subsidiaries. We got a 22% increase in electricity rates, the highest single increase in electricity rates in Florida history, approved by Ron DeSantis's regulators. If your home was destroyed or badly damaged in any of the two hurricanes we have just had, and your insurance company is offering you pennies on the dollar, not nearly as much as you need to replace your property, you can no longer sue the insurance company. They're immune from lawsuit under a tort reform bill signed by the governor after he took a four and a half million dollar contribution from the insurance industries. This list goes on and on. So I think in all honesty, he is his unfavorability is rate, rating is rising in Florida. And he, he's a two-term governor in a state that has term limits, so he cannot run for another term as governor. I don't think he's going to be the Republican nominee for president. He is now beginning to try to tamp down expectations, saying that a second place finish would be adequate in Iowa. That is really not the case. Trump is going to be the nominee. He is an energized Trump. I spent four days traveling with him a couple weeks ago. I must tell you, for a man under this kind of fire, under this kind of stress, I've never seen him in a better mood. He is resolute. He is determined. He's buoyant. He's relaxed. He's a little angry, but I think he has a right to be angry because- He certainly does, yes. He is the target of election interference. All of these cases- none of which I think are legally valid, are designed to impede his campaign, to drain his campaign coffers from money, to to interrupt his campaign schedule by requiring him to go through these trials, and, and this is not working, to blacken his name. Uh, we see his share of the vote rising in the swing states. We see his share of the vote rising among African Americans. We see his share of the vote rising among independents. I honestly think it is not outside the realm of possibility that President Biden or whoever is in office, or I really question whether Biden in the end will be the Democratic nominee, although I don't expect him to vacate the presidency until the end of his term in January, because I think he wants to preserve the presidential power to pardon himself and his brother and his son and other members of the Biden crime family. But I don't put it beyond the administration to to enact the War Powers Act in order to avoid the next presidential election entirely, in order to postpone it indefinitely. No, I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. You think I, the War Powers Act would be potentially in, in for, activated by him to stave off the threat of Donald Trump? I think it's entirely possible. By the way, go ask Alexa, and that's what Alexa will tell you. Well, so easy. I, you, ju- you just turned her on here. So just, <laughs> hey, I know uh, we only have a few minutes left, but what do you, if I could have it perfectly my way, since you're traveling with the president, I would hope you would convey to him that he do a complete enema on this government, not only his inner circle and cabinet folks, which he was supposed to trust most of all, but five layers down under their divisions and departments of government, that those are the bureaucrat people, term limits or no term limits, those are the 30, 40 year veterans of this government that have been working behind the scenes and caused not only Donald Trump his, his problems, but in my opinion, I think they are the puppeteers behind Joe Biden right now. And it's my belief that if Trump is to succeed the next generation, he needs to do an enema on the staffing. He needs to create term limits and he needs to some people, some people, there has to be consequences for some of the things that have been done, Roger, not only to you, not only to the president. I was making reference in our earlier portion of the program to the early day and the night going back as far as the Kennedy administration and all of the antics in the Johnson administration, which you so eloquently highlight in your book. My concern is, what is Donald Trump going to do 
to remedy the dysfunction of the operation. He is best suited as a businessman to run government because the operation needs fixing. Uh, the, the, there's no there's no management and oversight of people who are perpetrating frauds against this nation. Not to get not to mention individuals like yourself, Gene. I really strongly urge watch carefully what he's been saying in every speech. He has this very strong Agenda 47 videos that he's been putting out. You can see them on True Social. I think he's committed to exactly that. He is he is talking about a complete house cleaning of federal government uh, and a return to policies that put America first. I think he's going to be much, much more careful in the choosing of a cabinet. He's going to be much more careful in his choosing of a White House staff. I think he's now an educated, more awake Donald Trump, and therefore he's a much greater danger to the two-party duopoly that essentially tried to destroy his his presidency and now is attempting to destroy his comeback bid through election interference, in this case, sadly, using the judicial system to do so. Again, they seem to be making him stronger. It seems to be having the exact opposite effect. I honestly believe he's going to be reelected president. There still is, of course, the issue of whether we can have a free, fair, honest, transparent election, but I'm convinced we can have. The Republicans and Donald Trump were completely unprepared for the 2020 election. This time, both technologically and legally, they will be much, much better prepared. And I don't think you're going to see the, and if there is the widespread anomalies and irregularities, they're going to be challenged on a legal basis in a more orderly way. Now, today, The government's trying to persuade you that even saying that is a crime. It's not a crime. Every American has an absolute constitutional right to express concerns about the validity and the accuracy and the fairness of our elections. It's not seditious. It's not it's not treasonous. It's not criminal. You have a right to say that, even though it appears that that is what they seek to prosecute Donald Trump for. Let Let me wrap up by saying in order for that to be true, They have to prove both in Georgia and in Washington, D.C., that Trump knew in his heart and in his mind that he had lost. It doesn't matter how many experts told him that. It doesn't matter how many government bureaucrats told him that. What matters is what he believed. I don't believe he believed then that he had lost a fair election. I don't think he believes it today. So in the end, I think he will actually prevail across the board. I'm hopeful that some of these charges are so, I think, transparent egregious and transparent that I hope that they are ultimately thrown out and we can have an honest election. Because if we do, given the disastrous effects of the Biden administration policies on the American people and on the middle class, and given the, and given the epic corruption of the Bidens, I think Donald Trump will win. I also hope and pray that re- permanent remedies are in place. And I only see one guy doing it, Donald Trump. And that was my point earlier. I hope that not only does he vindicate himself by getting back into office, I hope uh, that he uh, establishes uh, policies and procedures, if not constitutional amendments, that mandate a fix to the dysfunction. And I would also go as far as to suggest uh, criminal prosecutions to individuals. Take it down to the individual level, just like term limits, and make sure that people behaving badly Hello, Adam Schiff. Hello, Eric Swalwell. And I could name six more that they are held accountable the way you had to be for a fallacious accusation that had no basis. In fact, any parting words or parting thoughts you'd like to give to the public? I'm not a lawyer and I'm not really at this juncture about revenge. What I am about is making America great again. Yeah. And the fact that I think our country's in desperate trouble. We are teetering on the edge of a world war uh, in Ukraine where our inherent national interests are not clear. We're in violation of the Minsk Accords, which we signed. We, By pushing uh, the Ukrainians into NATO, we're violating a treaty that we signed with the Russians. The silos have already been built. We seek to drop Western-based, Western-funded missiles aimed at Russia into those silos. That's a violation of a treaty that we signed. What happened when the Russians put missiles in Cuba just 90 miles off of our shore? President Kennedy acted very aggressively because that was an act of aggression. I think that is exactly the historical case here. 
Uh, I, I think Robert Kennedy, uh, as of all the presidential candidates, is making this case more articulately than anyone. Vivek Ramaswamy, who says some interesting things, failed to make that case in the debate. But I think we are, we are, I think, vaulting dangerously towards World War III. We don't yes, even have agree. any ongoing peace talks. That's beyond belief. We should yeah. at least have multi-party peace talks right now to stop the killing and pull the world back from potential nuclear conflagration. So, uh, look, I am praying for the nation. Uh, I'm praying for Donald Trump. I know this. When Donald Trump prays, and he is a man who prays, he doesn't pray for himself. He prays for America. Gene, Amen. thank you so much for having me. Folks can see my show every day at 5 o'clock Eastern by going to stonezone.live stonezone.live. That'll give you a menu of various places where you can see my daily show. That's five days a week. On Sundays, I do a radio show at WABC in New York, 77 WABC, one of the most powerful radio stations in America. Uh, we're making AM radio great again. That's from three to five. And you can listen by going to wabcradio.com because we are, we are uh, live streaming worldwide. And then if you're interested in my books or anything that I'm writing and talking about, go to stonezone.com. You can see the past uh, and the current episodes of my show, The Stone Zone. You can also read some of the things that I have written. The store is there. There's a lot of videos. I think you'll love it. If, if you're interested in all things Roger Stone, go to stonezone.com. Gene, thank you, you and God bless you. God bless you too, Mr. Stone. You Thank you for saving me some effort on the close. <laughs> Glad you put it all together. Folks, we broadcast this. This this interview will sit on grassrootstruthcast.com and it's there for uh, your pleasure. Please share it with others and, and give us some comments. Let us know how you feel. Roger, thank you again for your time. I look forward to doing it again with, in the future. And I hope, I hope your influence still remains as good as it has been over with Donald Trump as it has been over the president's preceding. Thank you so much. Thank you and God bless you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for Gene Valentino's Grassroots Truthcast. Be sure to like and subscribe and God bless America.